0: The letter of Jude. Hopefully, we'll finish Jude today. Uh, It's a little book, but there's a lot in this, and so we spent quite a bit of time. We spent. This will be our fourth week in the book of Jude. Um, There are a lot of themes in this letter that are very uh, were not only applicable to the time that Jude was writing to the church there in Asia Minor in that area during the first century, but it just so happens because the Word of God is alive and god 's word that the truth of god 's word is always valid it 's never old news it 's always current it 's always living and hopefully working in you and I but it 's very applicable to us today because Jude talks about apostates and and things uh, going on in the church that ought not to go on in the church. And he talks about some really strange things that kind of throw us for a loop, and uh, like in verse uh, 5 and 6 where he talks about the angels not keeping their proper domain. And remember last week we spent quite a bit of time looking at that. And we can't be you know, completely dogmatic about some of these things, but there's enough in the Scripture and uh, to conclude that the things that I shared with you last week were, were true. Because I believe the first century church believed that as well, but this morning we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into verse eight down through the rest of the of the chapter, but let's just um, let's read really verses five uh, down through at least eleven for now. Jude writes, "But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward." He destroyed those who did not believe. So we know that this was the children of Israel many years ago when they came out of Egypt. And how there was a a generation that was walking in unbelief and because of their unbelief and rebellion they perished in the wilderness and they didn't go into the promised land. In fact it was only Joshua and Caleb and the younger generation that went in. And what what Jude is doing here is he's reminding them that just as these apostates that we're going to be talking about, that we have been talking about and are continuing to talk about unfortunately, because I'm growing a little weary of this topic to be honest with you. But it's something that we need to talk about because it's all around us. But he's, he's drawing a parallel between saying if God didn't even withhold the chastening and even the judgment upon his own people. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, And the angels, even them, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the, of the great day. And he compares this this group, these angels, these fallen angels and their lust and the things that they did, he compares them with Sodom and Gomorrah, which was uh, an event, obviously, that's written for us in the Word of God that is true. It says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner, That there's an interesting line to underline, in similar manner to these, these fallen angels uh, leaving their first estate and creating all kinds of problems, including, just like them, as Sodom and Gomorrah, having given them so, giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Jude is setting up this uh, comparison that evildoers will be judged by God. And only those who are in Christ will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. But those who are not born again, the Bible says, unless you're born again, you can't see, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It is only for those whom the Spirit of God indwells, only for those individuals. And so how important is it for us to be born again? I mean, did Jesus say that or not? Or is it just some church tradition? No, it's not a church tradition. These are the words of our Savior. These are the the words of God Almighty. You must be born again. It's not good enough just to be a good person. Because the Bible says that there really are none good. No, not one. They have all gone astray. Every single one of us. That's why the Bible says you must be born again. There has to be something happening in you. There has to be a transfer of power you yielding the old nature and all the deeds of it, yielding it up and say, God, forgive me for all that I've done, and I receive you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God, he comes and he indwells the person who desires to know him and wants him. And when that happens, does God take it away because you've been a bad boy this week? No. He says, When he does it, it's a seal. You're sealed until the day of redemption, until the day of the rapture when he redeems your body physically and takes you with him. You are sealed. You can't mess it up. It's a work of God, and he does not take away things. The Bible says that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. That's a really scary thing, and it's also a wonderful thing for you and I. So it's something that he gives, something that he gives. But let's go on in verse 8, and it says, likewise also these dreamers, now he's speaking of these apostates. In that time, and he's also speaking of the time that we live in now, there's plenty of them around. Many of them are on television. Not all of them, but many of them. Many of them are packing out stadiums and and arenas. And they're they're feel-good speakers. They're motivational speakers. They're positive thinkers. And you might say to yourself, well, that's not so bad, is it? Not under the guise of Christianity. If you want to be a Zig Ziglar, then then do it outside of the church and don't feign to be anything but just a person who wants to help people live better. There's nothing wrong with that, per se. But don't masquerade as a, a man of God and then bring in a bunch of junk that's not even biblical. It's not right. And they were there in... Uh, Jude's day and they're certainly in our day and he goes on and he says likewise these dreamers they defile the flesh they reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said the Lord rebuke you But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. And Jude would say, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. He's speaking almost as if it's just like a past tense thing. Their their judgment is so sure, he speaks of it as if it's already occurred. That's how sure we can be. And so let's look at verse 8, and hopefully we'll finish this chapter. We really need to. Likewise, also, these dreamers, notice, defile the flesh, and they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Again, these dreamers that he's referring to are these ungodly men, these false prophets who had crept in. These are the ones that are spoken of in verse 4. If you look back in verse 4, you can see that. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men. So these aren't men who are born again and just kind of falling away. No, these are impostors. People who are bent on diverting souls and deceiving So he says, these dreamers, they defile the flesh. Notice that Jude is drawing a comparison between the judgment that those in verses 5 through 7 received, and we just looked at that. The people, uh, God's own people, after they came out of Egypt, and certainly those angels that didn't keep their first estate, just as those are going to receive judgment, so these, in verse 8, likewise also, these dreamers, they will also receive similar judgment. And it's interesting that also there's a similarity in their sin. Notice the first one, defiling the flesh. When we look back in verses 5 through 7, we can see that those of Sodom and Gomorrah did exactly that. They were defilers of the flesh. They gave themselves over to homosexuality and fornication. Notice both of those things. You know, the church thinks that we just harp on homosexuality, but that's not true. It may fit the narrative of somebody who comes in and has a problem, but God hates fornication. That's, that's between a male and a female that are not married. He hates that just as much as he hates fornication. Everybody understand? So God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of sin. Sin is sin, and he hates it all, right? He hates it. But he loves you. Aren't you glad? Everybody smile because this is getting kind of heavy already. Yes, but notice... These dreamers, they defile the flesh, and, and so did those of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so did those fallen angels who left their first estate. They should have been in heaven, and they manifested themselves into human beings, which we believe they're able to do. They had intimacy with women, and back before the fall, of, uh, before the uh, flood judgment, and even also afterwards. So they, these are defiling, flesh, defiling the flesh just as they did, and certainly rejecting authority. Who rejected authority? Remember Israel in the desert, they were constantly grating against the Lord. The Lord would give them commandments, and they were constantly digging in their heels. Have you ever seen a, a person trying to walk like i, I it's funny to watch a really an elderly woman uh, uh taking like a, a Saint. Bernard for a walk. You see this in Florida, Actually. We were in Florida this last Christmas. And this elderly woman's got this big dog, and she 's trying to take this dog, and the dog doesn 't want to go. So guess who goes. Who doesn't go anywhere? The, the elderly woman, you know, the dog just kind of sits there and he puts his feet in, and she's trying to pull him. And his, you know, you can see the harness going around his neck and his skin going like that. And the dog's not going anywhere. <laughs> not going anywhere. But they rejected authority. Israel rejected authority. The Bible is filled with that, and it could have been any people group. It's not just the Jews. We're all hardheads. Amen. I know I am. But also speaking evil of dignitaries. Certainly among this group that we had read before, they were certainly speaking evil, not speaking well of dignitaries or, or angels or luminaries, as we are called, as they are called. But notice it says that they defile, they defile the flesh. The idea is to soil or to contaminate. Contaminate. It's it's a stain. Isn't that a wonderful word? Have you been called a stain? I remember when I was in grade school, you know, somebody, you know, kids are just rotten at that age. I don't know what it is. Adults are, too, actually. But they have a little more decorum, so they don't call you a stain, really. They call you other things, usually behind your back. But kids will walk up to you, Rob, you're a stain. Right? That's the idea. A stain is something that is just soiled or contaminated. And that's what he's saying. These, they defile the flesh. They're They're stains. And this word occurs in other just a few other times in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 1 verse 15 it says to the pure, I love this verse, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled, there's our word, and unbelieving nothing is pure. For their mind and their conscience are defiled and they profess to know God but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient and disqualified for every good work. Have you ever met somebody who can't look at something without relating it to in some perverted way? Have you been around a person like that? Someone who, you know, it could be even it could be somebody, perhaps a woman, Without relating, uh, without them relating to it in some perverted way, they can't even look at a member of the opposite sex without thinking perverted thoughts. They can't hear an English word that sounds like something else in a slang term without immediately going to the, right to the gutter. Have you been around people like that? They just they smirk. You you mention a word, and it relates to something else. It's kind of not so nice, and they're already thinking the word. And instead of not thinking about it, you know, that's why I love this, to the pure, all things are pure. A person who is filled with the Spirit of God, who is a child of God, can look at those things, and they're not even thinking about that stuff. They can look at a member of the opposite sex and not think evil of them. A man can look at a woman and not lust for her, even though she may be attractive. And that's a hard one for guys. But to the pure, all things are pure. But to the the defiled, everything is defiled. They see life through a different lens. Don't you desire purity? Guys, ladies, don't you desire to be able to hear things and never relate to anything dark? Just, you know, to, to have your heart and to be in that place. And that's something that you have to cultivate, believe it or not. And you do that by abiding in Christ. You do that by getting into the word daily The Bible is a great rinser, a great cleanser of the mind and the heart. And the more you abide in Christ, the less of those things you're going to be thinking about. But the defiled person, that's all they think about. They're always trying to equate things that they see. The lens that they're looking through is dirty to begin with. And so everything is dirty to them. Nothing is clean. They're always looking for the evil. And I love being the Christian who's completely oblivious to those things. And rather trying to see the good or just not relating to it in an evil way. Does that make sense? In Romans chapter, chapter 12, what does it say? You don't have to go there, but let me, you can just write it down. But it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. How do you know what is good? You read the word of God. That's what you do. And in fact, in Ephesians, even though this exhortation is for men to women, Paul admonishes the husbands to wash their wives in the word. And the same is true. We are washed every time we read the word. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might do what? Sanctify and cleanse her, to set her apart, to cleanse her with what? Dove soap? Sounds kind of biblical, right? Dove That's what every Christian, do you guys have dove soap or is it life boy? You know, uh, only Christians have dove soap. I'm just kidding. So here it is with the washing of the water by the word of God. That is what does it. The water of the word. That's what cleanses us. That's the pure word of God. And the more I get that in my head, the more my life becomes more of a fragrance of Christ and less of the fragrance of the world, which to be honest with you is doesn't smell so good, does it? Does it? It doesn't smell so good. It doesn't look so good. But that's the idea. The word of God is a cleanser. But he speaks here that these speak evil of dignitaries. This word uh, is the Greek word do- doxa, which means glorious ones. It could be uh, celestial beings. And in fact, they probably are because uh, Jude is setting up a comparison uh, with Michael the archangel in the very next, next verse. Uh, And and notice that these men, they they reject not only civil authority, but they also reject spiritual authority as well. And he, he, he brings it to light right here. He says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. You know, whenever we see the archangel Michael in the Bible, it is always in some kind of, warrior context he's always in some kind of battle he's always for for the people of israel specifically he's always the one going to battle for them and and that's a mystery isn't it that there can actually be heavenly battles going around that we can't see think of how frightened we would be if we could see the the spiritual realm even in this room over some of you perhaps this morning the battle for your mind and your heart it would probably scare us all to death and it's much more so in the world we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but with spiritual, spiritual wickedness, principalities, powers, and dark places. But this this phrase here, he dis, being uh, disputing about the body of Moses with the devil. There is a uh, an extra biblical source. It's a. It's not a uh, part of the canon of Scripture because there are portions of it that don't line up with the Scripture at all. But the Holy Spirit has the ability to take uh, a work that perhaps the church hasn't, um, by the by the influence of the Spirit of God, canonized in the Bible. There are some books that God has the right, and here's, a, here's one of them. We're going to see another one later on where he'll take a portion, uh, 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 an idea out of one of those non-canonical books. Because it is truth, not everything is truth in those books. But God has the ability and the right to to bring out, bring out a point and pull out something from that. And this is one of those things. This this uh, phrase that uh, Jude is using is from uh, uh, a book called The Assumption of Moses, where evidently the devil argued with the angel about the body, apparently claiming the right to dispose of it. So there was evidently this battle. But we know that in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that God buried Moses. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse 5, So Moses and the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. God buried him. And how did he do that? Evidently, he had Michael the archangel involved in this. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. And perhaps the reason for that is Satan wanted to do something diabolical with Moses' body maybe he wanted to have Moses lie in state for the rest of his days you remember what happened with the, the children of Israel with Gideon and the ephod that he had made it became a fetish for them it became something that it, it became something that they began to worship until he had to destroy the thing and think of what would happen if they would have laid if the, if the devil would have had his way and did something maybe had Moses' body lie in state and certainly the children of Israel would have said hey that's a great idea he is after all a great leader but wouldn't it cause them to stumble? Because they would come around. It would probably be something they'd do every every month, every year. They'd come and they'd worship at the feet of their, of, their, of their Savior, the one who brought them out of Egypt. And God says, I'll have none of that. I am the one who brought them out. I'll give my glory to no man. And although Moses is in glory, God does not share his glory. So God physically buried Moses through the hand of Michael. And evidently there was some squirmish uh, with him and the devil. But I you know I don't really subscribe to the practice of some that you know they you know even you know Michael he he didn't dare bring an accusation against the devil you know he just said the Lord rebuke you you know and I don't necessarily actually I don't subscribe to those Christians who make a habit of yelling at the devil screaming at him, marching around their house and and acting like they you know in, in Christ we have all power with Him within us. But we ought not to think that we can match and go toe-to-toe with the devil apart from Christ. In fact, it's better that we just leave him alone and let God deal with him. But there are those who think that they can push him around and poke their finger in his chest like he's some insignificant angel. We don't want to give the devil more credit than he's due. But you know what? The Bible says that we ought not to uh, be doing those things. We see this in this verse. That we don't speak evil of dignitaries, we don't we don't like him. We we, we we don't like him at all. But I don't think it really matters to him. I think he laughs when Christians, you know, push him around like he's nothing. And I think he laughs when the Muslims on for the Hajj or however how you pronounce it, the Hajj, whatever Hajj that five, every five years they they go to Mecca in Medina, and they throw stones at the devil, and I think he laughs all the time at that. And then people, even well-meaning Christians, it's better that we just leave him alone and let God deal with him. After all, I don't really want to have any dealings with him. He's had enough of my life. Has he had enough of yours? Before you came to Christ, and even now, he can't take your salvation. He may be messing with you. He may be making your life more difficult, but he can't take away what God has given to you salvation. He can't take that away, but he can mess with you and he can make, he can tarnish your witness. He can make you feel horrible, but he can't take that away. Nothing can take that away. But these, they speak evil of what they do not know. And whatever they know, like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. And this is just gross ignorance. You know, it is very common for the natural man to be afraid of or to hate that which is unknown or that which is not understood. That's true. People fear what they don't know. That's why we fear the future. We don't know the future in its minutia. We know the big things. The Bible tells us these things. Thank God. Can you imagine not being a Christian today? I don't know how unbelievers do it. Because they have no faith. They have no hope. And they think what we believe, they don't even know what we believe. They see the world and the the place where it's going. I mean, if I was a believer, I'd be drinking too. If I was an unbeliever. Because what other solace is there? How important it is for us to tell them of the truth. I don't know about you, but that settles me knowing what he has shown with us already. We know the big picture, right? But the little details between here and there, we're kind of, we don't know. But we know the big picture. You know, and sometimes, you know, we think that we know something really well or maybe we have experience in something when, and when we, we think we know it all and we really don't. We have some experience, but yet we puff our chests up like we're something and, and yet there's always more to learn, isn't there? There's always more to learn. He says "Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet and they 've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Notice these three things: the first one is they 've gone in the way of Cain. The second thing is is these apostates, these dreamers they 've ran greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet, and finally. Jude's condemnation of them is so great, he speaks of it in the past tense. And they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. So what was the way of Cain? You know, in Genesis 4, it talks about the rebellion of Cain, his disobedience. He knew what God, what his standard was, and how he was to be approached and worshiped. And his brother Abel had it down. He brought a lamb and he sacrificed it. It was a bloody mess and God received that offering. But then Cain comes along with his, his, his fruit basket and the meat and cheese basket from Kittlebergers. and he brings it and he sets it before the Lord with a plastic cellophane, and a little bow, and a little note too. Love you, Lord. And the Lord says, I can't receive it. What? After all that I've done, After all that I do, this is the, you know, no respect, right? And so (laughs) that is, and then Cain, because of his disobedience, his willful disobedience and his rebellion, then what does he do? He's jealous, he's envious. He raises up, kills his brother out of envy, out of rebellion, out of disobedience, These two, they've gone in the way of Cain. They've also ran greedily in the error of Balaam. What what was Balaam's problem? It's recorded for us in Numbers 22 through 24. I would encourage you to read it. Balaam was a a prophet for hire and Balak, the king of Moab, comes to him as the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they're in the land and Moab is getting really nervous about it because they're seeing this huge dust cloud coming and it's just a couple million people. and So he he gets a bunch of money together and he hires a prophet. Go get Balaam. And Balaam, all throughout the Bible, we see him as being one of these guys in his own heart. He was conflicted. He was divided. One part of him, you know, he claimed to be something, and, the, and yet there was this, this sin of, of the, the love of money in his heart. And God dealt with him. And so there was rebellion in 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 the things of money, wanting money at others' expense, and we see these t v evangelists and these prosperity gospel ministers, they need to examine their own hearts because that's exactly what they're doing they're following the way of of balaam no really it's you know if you you know I won't even go there i was I was about to go off on something, but i won't so in fact, Balaam not only was. Was a lover of money, but he also. And Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter two when he's writing his letter to the the church at Pergamos, He gives us what happened. It's not recorded in the in the in the scripture in the Old Testament. We know what happened in the Old Testament, but we don't know the the cause of it. But evidently, Balaam, even though he wouldn't uh, curse the children of Israel, he. Uh, told Balak how to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to encourage them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So these are things too that these apostates, these men, and even in our time they 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 hold to. They run greedily in the error of Balaam and they also perished in the rebellion of Korah back in the Old Testament, just the rebellion against Moses they rebelled against his authority the levites themselves a portion of the levites rise up moses why you put all this stuff on yourself hey we're 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 levites you should be, you should be doing something we should have authority and moses just fell on his face they didn't understand and they were in rebellion they were jealous of the authority that god had given him to lead the people it causes strife. But notice in verse 12, it says, These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without without fruit, twice dead, Pulled up by the roots, and this speaks of fellowship. See these love feasts that the Christians at this time had, as they would get together and have uh, communion together after the resurrection of Christ. They 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 would get together and and have communion together, like we have communion together. And then afterwards, they would have what they call love feasts, where everybody would bring food, and they would just have a nice time. He says, but these guys will come into those feasts and they will pretend like they're something. They'll feign themselves as shepherds, but instead of feeding the sheep, they are only concerned about their own selves, feeding themselves and ripping them off. And the Bible says that we are not to fellowship with those who are enemies of the cross and yet feigning to be a believer, and especially someone who claims to be a believer, but who is an outright rebellion against God and his word. True fellowship, true koinonia can only happen between believers and Christ. To share the gospel with them? Yes, we are to do that. And for those outside of Christ, are we to go to them and minister to them? Absolutely. We are to be The messengers, the loving messengers, not going there to judge them, but to be a loving messenger, to bring them. Yes, we're supposed to do that. But the Bible has some things to say about that in in Corinthians, you know, not to be unequally yoked. You know, what, what concord does Christ have with Belial or what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? How, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And God says, come out from among them and be separate. These are believers who are are not walking. You know, you come out from among them. And then Paul would also write to the Corinthians and speak to them that, you know, we are. it's It's in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Let me just read it to you. He says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to accompany with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then we must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such, don't even eat with them. So in the first part of that, he's saying, you know, when you're going, if we weren't to minister to people, we'd have to go out of the world. Yes, you do go out and you talk to the fornicator. You do talk to the extortioner, the drunkard. You don't partake in what they do. You don't do the things that they do. You have to go and reach them, right? But when in the church, if somebody is in the church and yet they're claiming to be a child of God, yet they're continuing in fornication, they're continuing in homosexuality, they're continuing in their drinking, they have to be talked to. And if their hearts are right, they'll repent, they'll turn, and they'll be restored. That's the way it ought to be. But if they continue to not turn, then we need to turn away from them. Pray for them that they would come back. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Jesus was harder with those who, who claimed to be a religious leader or claimed to be a believer and yet weren't living according to it. He, wasn't, uh, he was harder with the Pharisees. Think of how gentle and kind he was to the woman at the well. This woman who was involved in fornication herself. How kind and comforting was he to her. Very gentle, very... And she got saved. But yet he would say to the religious leaders, the ones who claim to be the representative, and he says, you guys are snakes in the grass. You're a child of hell. (laughs) That's what he told them. Wow. Wow. He was harder with them. So it brings into sharp relief how we ought to be as Christians, to honor God, to honor Jesus, to live rightly, to represent him, to be the best ambassador that we can be. And this is what we need in church today is discernment. Over our own hearts first. We don't go around pointing fingers. I'll never forget a few years ago, there was a man who came here uh, and I, I've met him a few times, and he claimed to be a believer. I had no reason to not believe it. He seemed really kind, and we talked, you know, and it sounded like he really knew everything, what we were talking about. And one day, he wanted, a, he wanted a, um, to lease or, or to be able to come in on a Friday night to, to use part of our building with another group. And, um, and I told him that, we, you know, I, I started getting a really funny check in my heart. And this is when Pastor Jeff was still here. And Pastor Jeff said, you talk to him, whatever the Lord shows you, right? So I started talking to him. I started to feel more uneasy, more uneasy, more uneasy. And so finally he just asked point blank, can we use the, you know, that room down here at the end on a Friday night? And I said, well, our, our teen group uh, is in the building at that time. And, and, I, and I said, you know what, I, I don't, uh, I'm sorry, we can't. And you should have seen his countenance change. He condemned me and the church. I mean, this guy who claimed to be a believer, it's almost like as soon as I said no and he didn't get what he wanted, the countenance changed. Bink, bink, bink. The tail, I mean, the pitchfork shows up. Got a red face, and I'm like, oh. I can't repeat to you what he said to me, how filthy it was. And the Lord just showed me, he goes, that's why I gave you the check in your heart. And that, to me, is like this. They claim to have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, and they are just spots in your love feast. They are just blemishes. They're stains. This man needs to repent. Don't know what his motive was, but it wasn't good. And his heart certainly wasn't good. But they've missed their purpose. In fact, that's what the word perverted means. To look, in Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, he says perverted is uh, somebody who's turning right from wrong and distorted, corrupted, misinterpreted, or misemployed. And I like that, misemployed. That's something where you're, 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 you're doing something that you weren't created to do. That's what perverted means. And that's what people are when we are apart from Christ. We become perverted. We've been misemployed. We're doing something else that God has not called us to. And what he's called us to do, those are the things we aren't doing. And that's what it means to be perverted. And that's what these men are. These apostates. They're spots. They have clouds They're clouds without water. A cloud has a promise of rain to replenish the earth, to bring in water so that the crops can grow. But these are clouds, but no moisture. There's no substance to them. That's what it is. They have an outward semblance of something good, but they never deliver on the goods. And they're carried about by the wind because they have no anchor. They're carried about, just floating around like a leaf leaf in a little whirlwind. You ever see leaves in the fall when that, on the corners and the leaves just, they get them in a circle and they just start flying everywhere. That's the way they are. There's no anchor to them at all. They have no anchor because Christ is not their anchor. And so everything is variable. Everything is, ah, eh, if it feels good, do it kind of thing. Ah, eh, if it works for you. they are fruit trees in the autumn. A fruit tree in the autumn should be loaded with fruit, but not these Again, they have the promise. You see a fruit tree in the fall, you're expecting some really big, beautiful crimson crisp apples. You don't see it. They don't deliver. They're empty. They're not bearing fruit. They're raging waves, foaming up their own shame. They're wandering stars in whom is reserved the darkness of blackness forever. You know, foam on, 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 on a on a beach is the result of impurities and algae in the water, and it starts to accumulate at the shoreline. That's what they are. They're impurities that have been sifted out, and they're just their life is filled with it. There's no nothing clean about them because they've been defiled. And they're a shooting star. They're wandering stars. There's no anchor to it. Most mariners and, and, and shipmasters in the old days, they would they, they depended on. The celestial bodies for direction on the on the waters, but these are like shooting stars. There, there's no there's no stability. There's no fixed. There's nothing anchored. You get the point. And and they would look at those things and they know that there is Arcturus or whatever that is. And I know I need to go this many degrees this way, and it's going to take me over to the West Indies <laughs> or wherever but a wandering star, one that just kind of is a shooting star that does nobody any good at all, and that's what they are. And he goes on and he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam... Prophesied about these men, saying, "Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his of his saints." And it's interesting. This actual quote is from is not in the canon of scripture, but is attributed to the book of Enoch, which we know is an apocryphal book. And just as I said before, this truth that is spoken of that Enoch has spoken of evidently is true, even before the flood. Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied of the second coming of jesus christ not the rapture he spoke of the coming from of christ to the earth before the flood judgment how long ago was that quite a long ways ago he prophesied of an event that's still future to us future to us And either Enoch received this revelation from God or he quoted the truth of it from the book of Enoch even though he wouldn't necessarily condone the entire book and that's why it's not in the canon of scripture. But he prophesied before the flood and in verse 15 to execute judgment to convict all who are ungodly and this is what God is going to do among all them of their ungodly deeds. This word ungodly is quite uh, fluent in this verse ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken. Who? Against who? Against him, against God. See, there's the problem. They've spoken against him. Never speak against God. You're on very thin ice when you speak against God. You can speak against anything else, but when you start speaking against him, you better uh, be careful they spoke against him In verses 16 through 18 below we see that Jude is really quoting from 2nd Peter chapter 3 and you can just write down 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 because these next 3 verses are really come from Peter's epistle and we're going to see that and so he goes on and he goes these are grumblers they're complainers isn't this really exciting to talk about on a Sunday morning I don't know about you but I'm just so uplifted (laughs) <laughs> no, it is. It is uplifting in a different way because what it's doing is it's, it's showing us the opposite of what we need to be and the things that we need to be careful of and see as much as God loves to give us the warm fuzzies and the, and the encouraging things and the love and the grace and the mercy and oh, we just like that. It's like eating ice cream. You know, we love those things but we also have to go through these things. These are grumblers, they're complainers. They walk according to their own lusts and they mouth great swelling words. In the, in the Bible, there's a, there's a place, uh, in, I believe it's in Daniel, where it talks about the Antichrist or the beast. Speaking great swelling words and it's no different here. Great swelling words, just magnifying themselves in what they're going to do, flattering people to gain advantage. And these kind of people, these apostates, they, they, they curry favor with those in advantage. To the wealthy, they curry favor so they can be in their circles. And it's, you know, it's important for some people to be swimming in the same circles as those and hobnobbing with the rich and the famous and hanging out with people. You know, it's interesting that if you're, if you're an author of a book, And Oprah, read your book. You could be selling 100,000 copies on on a Friday. Oprah sends out a a tweet that she really liked the book that you wrote. The very next day, you're a millionaire. Within minutes, you're a millionaire. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But notice in verse 17, the mood changes here. And thank God, I've had enough of this. It's good for us, but the mood changes, thankfully, in verse 17. Because now, it's the, the exhortation now is to the believer. And we can see in uh, the statements in, for instance, verses 3, uh, verses 17, and certainly in verse 20, uh, Jude uses this phrase. He says, but you, beloved... But you, beloved, dear friends, dear believers, dear loved ones, that's really the idea. The mood changes here. After speaking about all these negative people and negative things, he says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 2, you can write this verse down. Let me read it to you. Second Peter two verses eighteen and nineteen. In fact, Peter and and John and um, and Jude, all these letters here at the end are very. It's a warning to us. And no doubt it's at the end of the book, before Revelation, because as we get closer to the events occurring in Revelation, these things are what had happened back then, and they're certainly talking about things that are happening currently, and they will continue to occur until the church is removed from the, from the earth in the rapture. But notice in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For when they, these false teachers, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure... They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. By whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. But he goes on in verse 19, but these, they're sensual. In other words, they're worldly, they're soulish. They're not spiritual, per se, and that's how they can appeal and allure through the flesh. They're very soulish, very worldly persons, and they cause divisions. They separate or they make divisions not having the Spirit. If the Spirit of God does not indwell you, you are not a Christian. That's what the Bible says. But notice, he says, the words spoken by the apostles... Concerning these apostates. You know, Paul spoke of them. You can write this one down too. In Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 31. Paul, when he was on the shores there in Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea as he was speaking to the elders at Ephesus he says for i have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of god counsel of god therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the holy spirit has made you overseers and he's talking to these elders of Ephesus he says to shepherd the church of god which he purchased with his own blood and paul says this he says for i know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and also from among those men I'm sorry also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away what disciples after themselves he says therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears so Paul the apostle speaking of these things Paul again in Timothy 2nd Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 he says i charge you therefore before god and the lord jesus christ he says preach the word and be ready in season out of, out and out of season convince and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and teaching why for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires they have itching ears and they heap for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the church from the from the truth and be turned aside to fables and folks that's what's happening today Do you know that? In churches all across America today, they're telling stories and feel-good things, and people aren't being fed the Word of God. It's important for us to teach the Word of God. After all, why would we gather anyway? Is the main reason we get together is to eat? It's a pretty good one, but it's not the best one, right? This is the this is the, the the focal point. It's it's the thing that we gather around, and then all the other things can happen. But that must be the central thing. That must be the most important thing that we do together. Is to gather around the Word of God. Amen. And sometimes it's not easy. Like this morning, it's hard. And other times, it's like, oh, I feel this is such a blessing. You know, love the, the feeling. Don't you love peace when you're in the will of God and you're you're loving Him, and there's a peace that floods over you that. The world can't understand. And it's such a wonderful joy to be a child of God. There are a lot of scriptures. Let me just give some to you. I won't read them. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And even John, the apostle, I'll read this one. And 2 John chapter 1 verse 7 through 11 it says this and these are things that we've all gone over recently in the last few months but he says for many deceivers have gone out into the world and 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 so when when Jude is talking about this idea that these um, apostles have spoken. that These are the things that he's referring to, the things that I'm reading to you right now. He says, the apostles have said these things, and this is exactly what he's referring to. In Second John 7-11, through it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Not the antichrist, but an antichrist. Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Let's go on in verse 20. And again, in verses 20-23, through Jude is again slowly changing the topic, thank you Jesus, concerning the judgment of apostates and into practical application for us as Christians. Notice what he says in verse 20, But you, beloved, again, and here's four things, build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. keeping yourselves in the love of God and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Four different things. Building yourselves up. There's, there's no greater foundation than that of Christ. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19, Paul said this, he said, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and, this, and the saints and members of the household of God, having been what? Built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? That's how we get built up, building up ourselves. He says, Build up yourselves on the most holy faith, the faith that was established by Jesus. He's the cornerstone and the prophets and the and the in the uh, apostles, the things that they shared, that Jesus put a stamp of approval on. These are things we can hold to, we can live by. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For there is no other foundation, or no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. Amen? And he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, and that just speaks of abiding, abiding in Jesus, keeping yourself in the love of God, keeping yourself in that place of continuing to be in that place of obedience, and worship because isn't there again there's a wonderful joy there's a wonderful peace and everybody smile because this is good stuff there's a wonderful joy and there's a wonderful peace when we know we're right with God you're not none of us are perfect but you know that wonderful blessed feeling even hate to use feelings too much but this is a good thing of knowing that you're right with God That you're not living in rebellion. You're really seeking to honor him in everything, in your mouth, in your actions. Keep yourselves in the love of God. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. And here's his exhortation to you this morning. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. So therefore, abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's a great joy. There's a blessing for obedience. And there's also curses for disobedience. I don't know about you, but I want to be obedient. I want to be blessed of God. I don't want my life to be a wreck. And the more I listen to him and I'm obedient to him, boy, my life just gets overflowed with so much joy, so much purpose. I can sleep at night. I don't have to take pills to go to sleep. And even my digestion is better because I don't have all this agita in my life. Your heartburn may go away. <laughs> Think of all the pills you might have to not have to take anymore just to have peace with God. And boy, it settles the soul, it settles the body, it settles everything. And you're just like that simple child sitting in a field. Man, simplicity, it's something we need to return to, isn't it? Life is so complex. I would encourage you to uncomplex yourself uncomplex yourself, simplify your life, you're going to have to fight to do it. But it's so worth it. Everyone else will look at you and go, when are you going to get with it? You're like a lazy bum. No, you still do your job. You still do those things that are necessary, but don't let anybody manipulate you. Don't be manipulated to do anything. Sometimes the best thing to do when all the demands of people are upon you is to just cut yourself away from it and let them be. And you go be with God. It's hard, isn't it? Because your conscience, then people say, man, you're, you're a hater. Hashtag hater. You're a hater. No, I'm a lover. I know what's best. And you should too. You need to spend time with Jesus. But if you won't, and you want to point the finger at me, that's fine, but I'm going to go spend time with my Lord, and I'm going to be peace out. And boy, that drives a person crazy. When you're all pieced out and ghosted, you spent time, the spirit of God is upon you, and you're just feeling like, oh, Lord, I just want three more hours like this. And you get a Christian whose heart's not right, and boy, they're just like rip you one from one end to the other. You should be doing You should be cleaning the bathrooms at church. Why are you just sitting here reading your Bible? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? But he says, "Keep yourselves in the love of God, and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life." And the, the idea of this is waiting, you know, expectantly for the rapture of the church. You know, um, there's so much about this. You know, I love in First John chapter three. He says, "Beloved, we are the children of God." And I love this. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, when we see Jesus, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in himself. Hope in him, I'm sorry. Everyone who has this hope in him, Jesus, does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, Christ has cleansed us, but there's practical application here, too. We need to purify ourselves too. We need to put off those things of death and the things of corruption and put on the things of God. And how do you do that? You read it and you pray and you think about everything you're doing. Be purposeful in your life. Don't just... Go, be on autopilot and do what you've always done. Be purposeful. Purposeful in sending the card to someone who's ill. Purposeful in making the phone call. Purposeful in sending the text message, even though you don't really want to, but you know it's the right thing to do. Send the text message. Hey, thinking about you, call me sometime in the next day or so. We can pray together. Let your life be about that rather than just filling it with things because the world will fill your calendar very quickly. But simplify your life, Christian. Simplify your life. Simplify your schedule. Ask the Lord to show you anything that's just not of him and jettison it. Cut it out. And rather be with him. Do the things that he's called you to do. I wonder how many things like that are in my life. So many things in a life. If you were to put them on a paper and say, Lord, of all these things that I'm involved in, I go here to do this with this group of people. I go here to do this with this people. I go here. How many of those things are really of your heart? And really be serious about it. Pray and ask him. And see if he won't challenge you to say, you know what, I'm going to cut this, I'm going to cut that, and I'm going to cut that. Simplify your life. But no, we run ourselves ragged. We're literally like 10 minutes away from chaos. Everywhere we go, rushing here, rushing there, rushing here, got to make this a moment, got to make it, oh, i got to put dinner, oh, i got to do that, oh. Next thing you know, man, you're popping pills just to keep your sanity. And the Lord's going, all you need is me. My burden is easy, my yoke is light, or my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But I don't know that I know that yet. Maybe you do, or maybe you don't. Something to think about. But he goes on in verse 22, and he says, And some have compassion, make a distinction. In other words, there's some people you got to just, you continue to minister regardless of where they're at. Whether they're an apostate, or whether they're a person who's just confused, or maybe they've been fed the wrong information. You, you, You go after whoever it is. As long as there's life and there's breath in a human being, never stop trying to reach them. Love on them. Don't get involved in their filthiness. Don't be defiled by the things that they do. But reach out. Grab a hold of them. He says, But others say, with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Go after them. Go after them. Go after these young teens that are involved in so many things. Love them. Go after them. Don't just let them go and let them, you know, well, they're not going to listen to me anyway. That's That's the excuse we have. Go after them. Love on them. And when they spurn you, you take that to the Lord and you continue to love on them and go after them. Continue. And the following verses are really the doxology. It's really the benediction. It's a good place to end. We'll finish this chapter, finish this book. He says, now to him who is able. These two verses are worship. This is our benediction, our doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. You know you're going to be presented faultless before the throne of God. Jesus is going to present you as his chaste virgin bride, Oh, man, how awesome that is. Just the thought of that. He's going to present you to his Father, this chaste virgin bride of Christ, which you and I are. You may not feel like it right now, but let me tell you, at the rapture, you're going to receive a new body. Everything's going to be new. And he's going to present you. This is what I've done, Father, and this is for you. Man. He's going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Isn't that wonderful? Exceeding joy, he's going to do this. Can you imagine the look on his face? The radiance, the beauty. Can you imagine? I love to get carried away with that stuff. And he says, to God our Savior, who alone is wise. There's only one Savior, and there's only one who is wise. There's only one who is reverend. His name is Jesus Christ to him be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever amen amen and i love this you know you look at a lot of paul's um benedictions let me just read one of them to you one of my favorites and then we'll pray and we'll be done one of my favorites Romans chapter 16, verse 25, he says, Now to him, at the end of Paul's letter, he would have a similar thing, a similar benediction, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone be wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. What a joy it is, isn't it? So let's stand together. And I would encourage you just to, be, to abide in the love of God. Let him love you this week. And don't think that your performance has anything to necessarily do with it. If there's something that you've done, what's the promise? If we confess, he is faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then take him at his word, honor him, and let him change you, continually changing you. Isn't that what it's about? It's sanctification. It's going to take some time. Let him sanctify and enjoy the Lord. Enjoy this new life that he's given you. And folks, simplify, simplify your life. Because he loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to spend more time with me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would do this work in us, Father, and that you'd protect us, Father, too. We know there's all kinds of things around us we don't like, things in the world that are going crazy. Lord, help us not to be distracted by politics and by, uh, by diseases and pestilence. Lord, you said in Matthew 24, all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. You've given us the truth. You've given us the future. Help us to abide in you now and to be, peaced, be at peace with you. So we love you, Jesus, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.